Dispatch, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. Joey and I are back today to talk to you about one of our favorite subjects. We're going to talk to you about the Carter family, and uh, we've both come to know and love them and their story and how uh, the Civil War comes to them. In November of 1864 is pretty poignant, and we look forward to talking about them a little bit today. Yeah, they're they're a part of our everyday mission you know it's of the three sites they're one of their there's one of our stories and it's a family that is so complex mm-hmm. and i think is really interesting so why don't we we kind of dive in with sort of the the uh the matriarch and the patriarch if you would is a uh, fountain branch carter uh born in virginia 1797 really for all intents and purposes he's first-generation American. Mm -hmm. The family gets out here early 1800s. They get out into Franklin and they start to develop into this this family. Um, And you start to kind of watch Fountain Branch come of age and growing apart from just the the Virginian in him and his family and start to become his own man. Then uh, 1823, Marion Polly Carter. gets married, yeah. yeah. And, you know, they're carving a life out of the frontier. At the time, Williamson County is the furthest county west in Tennessee. And so this is still the frontier. They begin um, their family in downtown Franklin. He's operating a boot shop down there. But he also works as a land surveyor. 1829, they buy about 19 acres on a little rise at the very southern edge of town and begin creating a farm there. He's going to add to his land holdings till by the 1850s. He has about 300 acres there, but he's growing all the usual crops, corn, and he's got livestock. And mm-hmm. the something that's unusual about the Carter family compared to the McGavick family is they eventually do start growing cotton, mm-hmm. and that was, we're kind of on the borderline of where that's... Yeah. Cotton's a strange possible. crop yeah. for a family to grow in Middle Tennessee. Yeah. We're... 40 miles too far north, mm-hmm. whereabouts. And it's that, that thing about the soil. It's, mm-hmm. it's just too soft for cotton. But he does it. He does pretty well. Builds a cotton gin. Um, by 1860, he, he's ginning about 12,000 pounds of cotton a year now. He's not growing all that. He's ginning for neighbors and friends. Right. And that's how he makes – that's how – I mean, cotton, of course, it's the number one crop being produced by the United States. We're, we're the world's number one supplier of cotton Absolutely. at that point. Um, and it's – that's how he kind of gets into it is by doing the ginning and the processing work through the cotton gin is mm-hmm. going to other farms and plantations and essentially saying, I'm Fountain Branch Carter. And mm-hmm. when it comes time uh, yeah. to bring I, in your yield, you bring it here. Yeah. yeah. So th- it, it's, it's, a, it's a growing thing the entire time. Their, their property is growing, but their family is also growing. Oh, my goodness. They have 12 babies in 20 years. And so Miss Polly's busy. She got her hands full. But unfortunately, only eight of them are going to grow up all to the be way adults. Yeah, they lose four little boys young, but the other four grow up to be adults and four daughters. Mm-hmm. In 1852, the worst possible thing that mm-hmm. could possibly happen to him. He loses Miss Polly, and they still have a bunch of little kids in that house. The mm-hmm. youngest child at the point that point's only eight years old, yeah. and it wouldn't have been unusual for him to get married again. A lot of men did just to make sure their kiddos had a mama, but he didn't. He remained a widower for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Has teenage daughters by then. Maybe they're helping with mm-hmm. those little guys. And then there's also 28 enslaved men, women, and children there, too. Exactly. And 18 of them are women that their primary duty is inside the house and mm-hmm. caring for the family. Um, so that's, an, I guess, maybe another aside to it, too, is that this is a family that not only are, are they 
this sort of, I guess maybe of all the three families that we talk about, they're almost the most relatable because they seem very... Down to earth. They yeah. seem like you don't people say that normal, you, but yeah. No, but they seem like people that you'd be comfortable having dinner with, or mm-hmm. you could, you know, you could have a conversation with them. The McGavicks seem a little out of my league socially, yeah. um, as probably are the Chairs family. Yeah. But the Carters seem a little more like people that you would have, you would have brushed elbows with, and and they're and they're tied into almost everything, though. And it, you know they're early uh, frontier settlers here in Tennessee, and they are part of that sort of, like, we, we mention it a lot here at Carnton, but it, the same could go for Fountain Branch Carters. He is there throughout the Jacksonian era. Mm-hmm. He sees all of these, uh, you know, Andrew Jackson's rise here in Tennessee. He sees slavery's expansion further west, too. He starts to kind of see, he is our, our, our maybe our window into that period, and then uh, we get to the Carters and secession. Mm. There's that, there's this part of the Carter family dynamic that we can kind of watch how the sons and the father act when it comes time to vote on the issue of secession. Because there's almost a a generational disconnect there because you have Fountain Branch and Moscow aligning somewhat and then those younger boys because they're at two very different stages of life. They've grown up in two very different worlds. Fountain and Moscow are both parents by this point. Moscow fought in the war with Mexico. He already has a pretty mature idea of what it means to go off to war. And then you got these two young bucks who are ready to earn their stripes, and they're a little more zealous. And so you're going to see a difference in the way they approach the war and the idea of secession. And they that part of that generational gap is, is we I sort of alluded to it with, with Fountain Branch and Moscow seeing the Jacksonian era and the, the Mexican-American War, they see duty to the United States. They see um, the Union must and shall be preserved. But Todd Carter, Theodric Carter, and Frank Carter come of age mid-1830s into the 1840s. They see the Calhoun era. Mm-hmm. They see the nullification crisis. They... Uh, read about and learn about, and they're inspired by this idea of states' rights, mm-hmm. if you would. They see these things kind of develop in front of them, and that shapes their outlook come 1860. Um, Tennessee, of course, uh, will vote on the issue of secession in February, and for all intents and purposes, Fountain Branch and Moscow are clearly on one side, and Todd and Frank are on the total opposite mm-hmm. end of the spectrum, but Tennessee stays in the Union mm-hmm. in February. And then Fort Sumter, then the call for troops, and then Tennessee votes again. And despite maybe cooler heads, um, Fountain Branch and Moscow, uh, Tennessee will be the 11th and final state to secede. And then all three sons, which I have always thought is really interesting, as Moscow was opposed to secession, and yet when it comes time for the war, he joins the Confederate Army. Now there is a poignant moment. Moscow talks about the first time that he takes the field as a Confederate soldier looks across the field and sees the United States flag, which he had fought under at Mexico. Mm. And now he's about to start firing on that flag, and that was a difficult moment for him. He's captured early in the war, Battle of Mill Springs in Kentucky, sent to Fort Warren, and when he's paroled and sent home, he has to sign an oath of allegiance, as did all those guys. He's supposed to promise never to take up arms against the United States again, and of course plenty of guys did that, went right back to their Confederate unit and went back to fighting, and Moscow didn't. Yeah. He's also 
just lost his, his wife mm-hmm. uh, and now has become the sole provider for four children. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you know, duty is no longer in the field, it's at home. Right. Uh, and then he comes back and Fountain Branch is no spring chicken at that point mm-hmm. either. He's, he's in his 60s. It's, it, it's, he's getting it, he's advanced in age, so Moscow really comes back home to be with his family. Well, and another factor at play, too, is that some of the enslaved are leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, once Nashville became federally occupied in 1862, slaves only had to get that far. They could be free. Some of the Carter slaves have gone. Mm-hmm. So Fountain Branch, not a spring chicken, as you said, but he's there, and he's there farming that land mostly by himself because his boys are gone. Some of the enslaved have left. And um, so I, I do believe that Moscow sees his duty there. And then the other thing, too, is that the daughters have come back as mm-hmm. well. Uh, Annie Vick and Mary Alice, which I think you had said you wanted to yeah, Mary give Alice a little bit more has, about. She's married by this point, but her husband's going to fight in the war. She and her husband have been living out in Texas, but Fountain Branch la- launched a major campaign just before the war and said, you need to bring the, my daughter and my grandchildren back home, and, and let's take care of them here. So they've come back, and they are there. Annie Vick had married, but her husband has died, and so she's come back home. And then two other daughters that hadn't left home yet. So it's a house full. There's, by the night of the battle, there's 16 Carter family members living in that house, and nine of them are under the age of 12 because one Carter's son had died in 1859, James. He was living in Mississippi at the time, and so his widow has also come back. She's got two little ones, and so it's a house full of kids. Mm-hmm. And um, they're all there when the war comes to the Franklin. And they're a family that sees the war continue to touch them because not only does Moscow serve and is captured and comes home, Todd serves, Frank uh, Francis uh, also serves as well. And he's uh, injured at Shiloh, mm-hmm. comes back home for a little bit and heads out west and manages to get himself back in the war again. <laughs> uh, and then Todd Carter. And I think that that's the one story that most people, when they come to Carter House, uh, they've either read about it somewhere, seen a YouTube video about it, or... Uh, have been before and want to hear the same story about Todd Carter again. Uh, Todd goes off to war. He's a lieutenant. He's captured the Battle of Missionary Ridge uh, November of 1863. Um, And then he sort of has this uh, experience as a prisoner um, that will take him from Cincinnati, Ohio, to Memphis, Tennessee, to Birmingham, Alabama, to Dalton, Georgia, where he rejoins the Army of Tennessee and fights through the Atlanta campaign. Uh, with them prior to May 1864, uh, and that leads him inevitably here, November the 30th, 1864, uh, at the Battle of Franklin. And it's where you kind of see this collision of everything that the, the Carters have seen. Yeah. They've got sons fighting in the war. They've got the daughters coming back home. Franklin was occupied. It was occupied, right. And there's a story. Um, the Carter family actually entertained some U.S. soldiers just a few weeks before the Battle of Franklin. They've had them over to dinner, and one of the men talks about it because the girls apparently sang for them. Lots mm-hmm. of good secesh songs, they said, but they wouldn't sing Yankee Doodle for anything <laughs> in the world. So um, they were still pretty particular about what they would and would not sing. And yet the war touches them mm-hmm. and then it shows up on their front door mm-hmm. and we could talk about the battle all day long mm-hmm. it's literally it's what we do mm-hmm. um, but they are affected by this war because when they go downstairs into that cellar mm-hmm. and I, I make a point to say this so many times is that they leave behind everything that's normal mm-hmm. 
they stay in the house, sure. The home is still theirs, but that ground has changed. Mm -hmm. The outbuildings are no longer just the farm office and the smokehouse. There's something different yeah. about them December the 1st, 1864. Mm -hmm. And they come out, they are surrounded by this battle. They come out of the cellar and they enter into this, this new reality. Mm -hmm. And things are never going to be the same for them again. From that point forward, the war starts in 1861, yes, and it... It progresses through these three, at this point, very tumultuous, violent years. Then 1864 comes along. Social hierarchy and structure that they knew in 1861 is gone. Mm -hmm. uh, and then now their farm is wrecked by it. And then their family is wrecked by it, too. Yeah, because they lose a son. But they also, the property is completely transformed. Two of the most poignant bullet holes, I think, in the whole property are actually in the attic. They're in the bedrooms. There's a wall that's pierced by two bullets that night. And I think, as a mama, I think about taking my kids up there to put them in bed in those attic rooms and looking up and seeing those bullet holes. I mean, you never forget that. They're, visitors who come to see us see the smokehouse. They see the office. They see all those bullet holes. And that is that moment that you open that office door still takes my breath away every single time. But there's a soldier that comes back and visits a few, um, maybe a couple years after the war, and he talks about the other outbuildings, the ones we don't have anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, Fountain has to rebuild barns and stables, and all he has to work with are those boards that were ripped apart from his original barn and stable and were put into right. the earthworks, and they're full of bullets. This guy comes back and he said, listen, that, that building was full of bullets. I asked if I could take one. He said, if I let every soldier who came here take a bullet with him, my barn would fall down. So, you know, they're living surrounded by that constantly, you know, constantly finding little bits and pieces that were left behind. Mm -hmm. The cleanup is massive. Yeah. Moscow talks about all the things that he has to gather up out of the yard that I don't even want to say yeah. out Christmas loud. Christmas Day, that's how he spends Christmas, is cleaning the property. And then May of 1865, spends almost the entire month leveling out all the earthworks, earthworks. that were on the property. He's trying to get the place ready yeah. to farm again because that's rebuild, how they're going yeah. to make it. Rebuilt fences, replant orchards. I mean, all that has to be reclaimed, and that's a major undertaking. And they they do apply for a grant after the war to have their property uh, repaired uh, mm -hmm. through funds from the federal government, but that money doesn't come until 1872, mm -hmm. and it's... It it's is, not a whole lot. Yeah, I was going to say it's like 360 bucks. Or yeah, something I think like out of maybe I don't know, a couple thousand or something he asked for. It's, yeah, he's very meticulous in the application. He lists all these different mm -hmm. fence posts and everything that was destroyed. But um, doesn't get uh, quite get the penny lot. that he thought no. that he would. And that's the year after Fountain Branch Carter is dead, mm -hmm. too. So it's, it's money that goes to Moscow. And what can you really fix mm -hmm. maybe you could put some mortar into bullet holes on the house but that's even that's pushing it you know uh, and they're they're picking up the pieces all around them mm -hmm. and i think sometimes maybe that's the most relatable thing about the carter family is that their story is a story about this american family this is a story that of a people that see everything around them change mm -hmm. and then they still manage to move on yeah they have to go on they have to keep going moscow remarries Marries a woman named America, which is fun. So Moscow and America is basically the United Nations. And sadly, <laughs> she dies uh, fairly young as well. And so he marries a third time, but he ends up with a house full of kids again. And 
you know, house is full of noise, life goes on on the farm. But you see them struggling, figuring out how they move forward. They give up cotton for the most part. It becomes not terribly profitable, and they have to kind of reconfigure how they're farming and sell off pieces and parcels of the land here right. and there. But, I mean, was there, they start out uh, by 1860 with 285 or so acres, and then by the time Moscow has to sell the farm in 1896, he's almost back down to the original acreage, mm-hmm. um, and then they trades it almost for a fair swap for a farm out, out, uh, out in Tyune, yeah. And there's a, you know, the, the enslaved are having to figure out how they move on too. I mm-hmm. mean, they have freedom. They, because of the 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment gives them citizenship rights, 15th Amendment gives uh, the men the right to vote, but they don't own property, they don't have a house, they have to figure out how to move forward. And there's a, one of the great stories there at the Carter Farm is about Jack and Calphurnia. They are a married couple that had worked for the Carters beforehand, and they stay on. They have a rental relationship with Fountain Branch for a number of years, and when he dies, he actually leaves land to them, as well as to a little boy, Gus Carter, who's still very young at the time. But um, Susie, who was the cook, I mean, she goes on working, and she has a son, Oscar, who lives in the general area for a long time. He's a farmer for a number of years, and then eventually buys property down on Natchez Street, just about a block from the Carter Farm, where he runs a restaurant out of the back of his house. Mm-hmm. But um, Everybody has to figure out what's next. And they, there's that level of, I guess, maybe it's the triumph of the human spirit that makes that story um, relatable or, or maybe that's what touches people. Mm-hmm. But there's no way that you can look at the Carter house, see the damage that's done. Because everybody talks about the farm office because mm-hmm. it's, so, it's so visible. Mm-hmm. But it, I think we've talked about this before is that the smokehouse is mm-hmm. badly damaged as well. The south-facing mm-hmm. side of every wall of mm-hmm. the property is badly damaged, and yet they still lived there, mm-hmm. and they lived there after the war, and children and there were, were still there born there. were children there. born, and there were weddings. Annie Vitt gets married again, ironically, to a United States soldier. Frank Baltischweiler comes back to do some drawings, and they end up meeting on the battlefield of all the places, and they end up getting married and have some children, and, you know, life goes on. And it, it's hard to imagine, I, I think, for a lot of people, is that we, we come to grips with this thing that transforms these people's lives. Moscow Carter was born in 1825. His primary mode of transportation that he could, when he was born was horse and buggy. Uh-huh. He sees the antebellum South. He sees the Mexican-American War and fights in it. He sees the American Civil War. He sees secession. He sees the destruction of the Union. He sees the American Civil War and fights in it. Then he sees Reconstruction. You know, and he saves a newspaper. When the Civil Rights Act is passed, he actually mm-hmm. saves that newspaper because he realizes this is this is a significant moment. Something's yeah. changing. Yeah. And there he is living through it. Mm-hmm. He sees the Jim Crow era. Mm. Then he sees the turn of the century, too. He sees the invention of the automobile and the airplane. He sees Things all of like the modern things that we can think of. Yeah. Electricity. People were driving around in cars when he was born with horse and buggy. Mm-hmm. He lives until 1913. The American Civil War was only four years of his life. Mm-hmm. But it's four years that changed his life forever. Mm-hmm. He sees the war personally, up close, in person, and then he has it surround him, where he's almost powerless to do anything about what's happening during the battle. There's nothing that he can do from the cellar. So protect his family, get him down. Yeah. Well, I mean, to the extent possible. Yeah. 
go down to the cellar. That's all you can do. And he lives through it all. And in a lot of ways, I think one of the easiest ties for that is the Carters have this incredible story about how they're transformed by this battle. They lose a son in the fight. Todd Carter will, will be killed in the fight, is serving with the 20th Tennessee. Comes home, he dies in the house that he was born in. And his story is remarkable and it's incredible, but there's over 2,000 dead men surrounding this almost mile and a half long front, the center of which is right in front of the Carter house. He's just one of all of those men that are killed. And that whole entire landscape has changed, just like the country has changed after the American Civil War, just like Moscow Carter's life has changed after the American Civil War, like Oscar and Susie and Gus and all of these people, all of these people we talk about every single day. Our tagline on the bottom of our logo is learn how the Civil War redefined America. Look no further than the Carter family. Mm -hmm. I think that's the beauty of this story is that you get this deep dive into this one family's life and you see it, how it impacted them. And then you say, okay, now multiply that times hundreds of thousands of people across the country whose, whose lives were transformed, just ordinary people like the Carters. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's something that I think we hear about it and it's hard to... Um, maybe visualize, and that's mm -hmm. why you have to go to the site. You have to come to Carter House. Stand um, in that place. It's the power of place, yeah. exactly. You, you stand, and I, I say this before I start some tours sometimes, is like when you get the right group of people, right? Mm -hmm. You say, uh, we're going to talk about things that happened right here. We're going to talk about this family, children, like picture Moscow Carter at a young age, you know, mm -hmm. 10 or 12 years old, just running around on the farm being mm -hmm. a little boy. That happened there. So did the fight that took place there. And that's that's hard to separate the two, but then you realize it's all part of the same story. Mm -hmm. It's all part of that fabric. Um, one of our coworkers says that history is like a symphony, and you have to have all the pieces playing, the and you take one piece out, and it's a different song altogether. Moscow's story and the battle and the story of the Carter family, Fountain Branch, uh, and, and Polly, their children, it all ties back together to our site, and it's all part of the story that we tell here every single day. I think that we've had a great discussion about just the Carters in general and, and sort of how they've uh, come to evolve throughout the war and come to change and, and the impact of the war on their lives. Again, one of the things that we do on the show is we always love to give you something else more than just our 25 or 30 minutes that we can give you in this episode is, is that this is just supposed to be a starting point. So Sheila, are there any additional resources and, and places that our listeners can go to for more about the Carter family? Absolutely. Um, one of the great places to find out more about everything that we talk about is on our YouTube page because we've done a number of different short films that are going to give you a deeper dive into whatever you find interesting, whether that is the battle, whether it is the family, whether it's gardening and farming back in that time period. You can take a deeper dive on lots of different subjects. Another way to do that, obviously, one of the most powerful things is simply to come and visit. And you can do that with a classic house tour. You can buy one of our packages, which allows you to go to all of our different, all three of our different sites. But we also offer specialty tours. And so if you really want a deep dive, uh, we offer extended tours at all three of our sites. We offer slavery and the enslaved tours. And you're going to hear about the enslaved populations at all three of these sites. But if you really want a deep dive, that's a very good way to go about doing that. Battlefield tours, again, available at all three sites. If you want to see how the battle looked uniquely from that one position, that's a chance to do that. So we 
We encourage you to look at the YouTube sites, visit our Facebook pages. We are constantly uploading content on all three Facebook pages about American history in general, the whole broad sweep, and then situating the Civil War inside that. We give lots of extra information about these families on the individual sites, and so you get to hear about what happens to them in the years following the war. Where do they end up? What does their life look like? So those are all resources that we would love to point you to to get a little information, go a little bit deeper. So once again, we want to thank you for listening to The Dispatch, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. We thank you for your support and for checking out another episode with us. Be sure to uh, like the episode, subscribe to the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Sheila, I want to thank you again, uh, as always, for bringing in as a wonderful co-host. And uh, that's it, folks. We'll see you on the battlefield. Thank <laughs> you.